About 2.30 on the afternoon of January 6, 2021, Army General Keith Kellogg, then Vice President Mike Pence's National Security Advisor, went to see President Trump in his private dining room. Kellogg was alarmed. Trump supporters had swarmed Capitol Hill, busting through barriers, smashing windows, wandering through the halls, chanting, hang Mike Pence, and threatening the safety of lawmakers who had assembled to certify the election of a new president. Kellogg found Trump sitting all alone, watching the events unfold on TV. This is out of control, Kellogg told Trump. He needs to get a tweet out fast to tell the loyalists to stand down and stop the violence. And then, according to Peril, the new book by journalists Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, Trump blinked. Yeah, he said. And then Trump turned back to the TV set, a solitary president watching a capital in crisis in the nearly deserted White House. Kellogg's appeal is one of the many eerie scenes that are laid out with cinematic detail in Peril, a book that chronicles the bizarre final months of Trump's tumultuous presidency. It's a period that, as the authors make clear, even faithful loyalists and top aides came to doubt the commander-in-chief's mental stability. Just how much peril was the country actually in with Trump at the helm? We'll talk to Woodward and Costa about that and much more on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, there are so many amazing scenes in peril that, um, uh, you know, it's hard to pick out one that really grasps the enormity of what was going on. But somehow that scene with Kellogg trying to get Trump to put out a tweet to calm down his loyalists who are staging this riot on Capitol Hill kind of just really grabbed me. It, it had a sort of Nero fiddles while Rome burns kind of feel to it. Trump all alone looking at the TV and basically doing nothing while the Capitol is under siege. Uh, it really grabbed me. One thing that you noticed reading that book, uh, and you know we've known this about Trump all along, but it really kind of came to the fore in in, in this account, is his obsession with his base. And Victoria, we we talked about this uh, the other day. Yeah, you know, he's such a total and complete narcissist that you know this, this idea that that uh, whatever his his base wants, you know. They get, and that it it drives everything about him in some ways. He won't do anything or say anything that might upset his base, his people, right? Right. Because there's some because it's so ego driven. It's it's this this conflation of you know his loyalists out there and who he is. It's yeah, I've never seen anything quite like it. Victoria, what are your yeah? And and well, and the thing about it is, is that he's he's gotten into a feedback loop with that base, you know, where he's prodding them and they're prodding him. And if it were limited only to Trump and his base in kind of constant dialogue, 
I think that would be one thing for our democracy, but unfortunately, the kind of the feedback loop between the two has spread to a substantial number of members of the Republican Party who are um, either afraid of Trump's base or are trying to uh, seize control of Trump's base as well as the kind of the party moves to the edge. Right. Um, it's and the book, the book, one kind of story after another, really kind of shows that that strange warped dialogue that's occurring throughout all of the players and with the with the kind of the base, kind of off scene, off you know, kind of, but always baying chorus in the background of yeah. the, you know crazies uh, shouting. But, you know, for all the sort of psychological dimensions to this book and, you know, Trump's weird, you know, narcissistic, you know, personality disorder tendencies, you know, there's a lot of meat as well. And, you know, the, the General Milley calls to the Chinese, his Chinese counterpart got all the big headlines uh, when the book was first released. But the John Eastman memo is so friggin' amazing. This, like, constitutional law professor, former Supreme Court clerk, who just writes out a, a script for how exactly Trump can stage a coup, uh, override the results of the election, and become president again. It's a perfect example. In early January, what was happening was the kind of the militant wing of the kind of the Trump party was gearing up for a fight while the parliamentary and legal wing was attempting to dress up what they were going to do with legal platitudes and with kind of, you know. Kind but of, but you know, let's just remember, Eastman yeah. is an outlier. You know, at the end of the, I mean, as Woodward and Costa document, you know, Mike Lee, as conservative a senator as there is from Utah, tried to follow up on the on what Eastman was claiming about dueling electors in there and said, this is nonsense. There's nothing here. Uh, Lindsey Graham's, you know, chief lawyer, Lawyer analyzes it and says, this is nonsense. There's nothing here. Bill Barr rejects it. So there were, you know, those, there were these guardrails. The guardrails it's not, yeah. you know, that did hold at least that time, whether they will again is But, that, is but that's, question. but that's in, yeah. in a way is what's, what's terrifying about the book, because Trump also had all of these acolytes who were trying to push the envelope, break every possible norm, do things outside the the bonds, the bounds of the Constitution. And were it not for these guardrails, whether it was Milley or Senator Lee or or in the end, uh, Mike Pence, Trump would have, who knows what Trump would have done? He would have, I think, seized power. <laughs> Right. I mean, well, or tried to hold refu- on to power, to, uh, refuse to relinquish power. Re- refu- anyway, refuse to there's certainly power. at a minimum a lot of grist for the January 6th committee in Congress to follow up on here uh, in terms of uh, subpoenas and calling people to account some of the meetings that they lay out with Steve Bannon playing a central role. It's going to be really interesting. Actually, one very quick point on that, which uh, was buried in a story in the New York Times that I found fascinating, is that the committee, you know, which has now subpoenaed Trump administration officials, uh, people who are involved at the higher levels in organizing the January 6th event. But they are also, uh, it sounds like, reaching out to uh, dozens of the 
people, the, the actual um, insurrectionists who were in the Capitol that day wreaking havoc and who have now been charged with crimes and are awaiting trial, it would be fascinating to see if any of those people cooperate even if it's just to hold a hearing along the lines of the, the hearing that we, the first hearing they had with the police officers that would be more about messaging and if these people perhaps they cut deals and I don't know if there's a way for them to get leniency to then uh, cooperate with the investigation but it's a little bit reminiscent of the the mafia figures who investigated <laughs> for you know Joe yeah. Valachi or whatever in the 1960s when Congress was investigating the uh, organized crime for the first time. So by the way, it does remind me also you know they've got pretty detailed accounts of phone of the phone conversations between McCarthy and Trump, which has been something people have been you know very curious about for some time. So I think you know there's there's certainly a, a, a quite a they're good... being awfully quiet right now. So what's uh, what's the the committee? Yeah, the committee. It's like well, they just what? issued these subpoenas, though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the you know. well, we will see. Anyway, yeah. lots to talk about with Woodward and Costa. So let's get to it. All right, we've now got with us Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, authors of Peril, the um, new best-selling book about the last days of the Trump White House and the first days of the Biden White House. Just just hit number one, didn't it, Bob, on the New York Times bestseller list? Bob's used to that. Yeah. Right, right. Anyway, uh, Bob and Robert, welcome to Skullduggery. So, Bob, I want to start out asking you this. Your second blockbuster bestseller written nearly half a century ago was The Final Days, about the last days of the Nixon presidency, a, a presidency marked by a uh, period that... Um, Nixon was widely seen as psychologically unstable and um, potentially unable to serve as president of the United States. Um, And your new book, Peril, is about the last days of another presidency marked by somebody who is widely viewed as psychologically unstable. How would you compare the two final days, as it were, at which point was the country in greater peril under Nixon in the final days or under Trump's final days? Interesting question. Something Costa and I've talked about. First of all, uh, Nixon was an established criminal because of his tape recordings. There was no ambiguity. This The second difference is the Republican Party turned against him There is a moment after Nixon resigned where Carl Bernstein and I went to see Barry Goldwater, who was the conscience of the conservatives of the Republican Party. We went up to his apartment here in Washington and he got out his diary that he dictated daily and he dictated And he read it to us. It was a very interesting moment because he described August 7th, which is the last week of the Nixon administration, how he and the leaders of the Republican Party went to see Nixon alone. And Nixon knew and said he was going to be impeached in the House, but what was going to happen in the Senate? 
And so Goldwater's sitting there and he said, Mr. President, I've done a vote count and you have five votes among Republicans and one of them is not mine. In the case of Trump, it's a national security crisis. Trump has been accused of many crimes, but they have uh, never been pinned on him in a way that it's accepted or the legal system uh, has at this point. But the national security crisis, which we outline in the book, was much more dangerous for the country. The possibility of some sort of conflict or war with China is laid out in alarming detail. The idea, and this is one similarity, that General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had to, on this is January 8th, two days after the insurrection, when everyone is abroad, Russia, Iran, China in particular, are worried that the United States is going to collapse. And Milley literally calls the people from the war room in the Pentagon who uh, oversee the release of nuclear weapons or the transmission of communication for any military action. And he says to the watch officers, you will make sure I am involved. I am at the table. I am in the loop. And he gets a pledge from these officers in a very dramatic moment. As you may recall, in 1974, Secretary of Defense Schlesinger did the same thing with Nixon and made sure that he, Schlesinger, had to be involved in any effort by Nixon or anyone from the White House to take military action or even use nuclear weapons. Sorry, that's a long answer. I apologize. One follow-up on that. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of controversy about your reporting about Milley and what he did, and he's had to answer a lot of questions on Capitol Hill this past week about this. But, I mean, did he, was he stepping outside his authority as chairman of the Joint Chiefs when he made that phone call? I mean, he has argued he was not, and these were the sorts of phone calls that, you know, he makes with counterparts around the world, you know, I don't want to say all the time, but he does make them. Based on your reporting, was he exceeding his authority? Let uh, Acosta understands this better than I. Okay, Robert. <laughs> it's evident based on our reporting that Chairman Milley was reminding officials at the Pentagon, uh, these officers, uh, about the procedures, about launching a strike or using the nuclear arsenal. And calls that are mill to mill, and you both know as well as anyone, uh, can be routine. But the moments in which Chairman Milley made these calls October 30th, 2020, and January 8th, 2021, were anything but routine moments. They were extraordinary moments. Uh, as Milley testified under oath a few days ago, uh, there was a fear in October, days before the election. Intelligence showed that there could be some kind of wag the dog action. The Chinese believed that. Milley needed to calm down General Lee of the PLA, with whom he had a five-year relationship. And some of the reporting and I just urge people to read pages 128 through 130 of the book. The reporting deserves context, and it's in the book. 
and so does the discussion of this issue. Milley is saying to him, if there's any kind of action, as there has been throughout history, there will always be an escalation. There will be communication. And Milley said, I'll call you. He said that under oath. We'll talk. There'll be a back and forth exchange. He was trying to de-escalate. Our reporting lines up with his testimony about that October 30th call. And you see in that moment on January 8th, in part prompted by Speaker Pelosi, we have the transcript in the book, uh, Milley feels compelled to make sure that everything's okay. Uh, and it's not that he believes President Trump wants to go to war. We spell out in our book, he does not believe President Trump's an interventionist, that President Trump seeks war. But he, he believes, based on our reporting, that President Trump at that period was in serious mental decline. And he has to confront a, a phrase that will stick with Woodward and I for the rest of our reporting lives, I'm sure, the quote, absolute darkest moment of theoretical possibility. And that's why he calls in the members of the NMCC. Let me just follow up on that, because I want to be clear about what you guys are reporting here and what you think was in Millie's mind based on your reporting. Because a moment ago, Robert, you said that, that Millie was fearful of a potential wag the dog. Um, no, I said the Chinese. Okay. The, chi- the Just the, chi- the Chinese. So you think it was it was all about preventing... Well, our reporting shows that on October 30th and later in January, that U.S. intelligence showed China feared Trump acting out in a wag-the-dog manner. If you look at Asian media reports at the time, at both of those periods, there's Trump's rhetoric on China was very hot. And that, along with other issues that came up in intelligence reports, fueled that. And Congress wants to hear more answers. As we saw in the testimony, they're pressing Milley to provide more answers to Congress about what exactly that intelligence was. But he, he said, I was really amazed at his forthrightness. He said uh, that they had all kinds of intelligence uh, that the Chinese feared we might attack them. And uh, for a military person, that's the, the most troubling moment because you're on a hair trigger. If the enemy thinks uh, or the adversary in this case, China, thinks uh, we're going to attack them. They may take a, a first move for advantage, as it's called, or a Pearl Harbor. And it was a moment of crisis. And I, as we, I mean, both, uh, Danny and, and Isikoff have done this all their lives, reporting on sensitive intelligence matters, it uh, is very clear from Millie's testimony, he's confirmed everything that we had in the book. He added a couple of things, but these calls were moments. I mean, think you, you're in his position and you get that kind of information. It's a crisis. You have to act. You, you have, in this case, uh, Millie had this five-year relationship with General Lee back channel, he, he was the one who could call Lee and say, hey, look, this is just not true. And he went through uh, in detail yesterday exactly, you know, that this kind of call is not to tip off the Chinese. It is to say, if there is tension, if we are on the edge of some sort of military action, kinetic action, as they call it, they will be talking back and forth, trying to de-conflict the situation. 
One of the really fascinating quotes uh, in the book is from Congressman Adam Smith, who's the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And this goes to the question of whether we were, in fact, close to war. Was, was that a legitimate concern? And he suggests, no, my fear with Trump was always that he was going to engineer a fascist takeover of the country, Smith said. I never really worried that he would start a war. He's a coward. He doesn't want that level of responsibility. Yes, but you see what uh, happens uh, in history. Look at the history of World War I. Everyone prepared for it, and no one wanted it, but it occurred and 50 million people were killed. So wars are something uh, they are, and particularly if you're in the military. I remember when I served in the Navy in the 60s being on a guided missile frigate off the coast of Vietnam. And you would see boats coming up to our destroyer or action out there. And you are in an environment where you are scared to death. I live that. Let me follow up on, on Adam Smith's concern, because at the end of the day, one of the main differences between Trump and Nixon is his base. And as we know, Recent evidence indicates that a very substantial portion of the American population believe that um, violence in support of Donald Trump is a legitimate aim. As was, was Adam Smith, in fact, right? Is there, in fact, a kind of a, a, a kind of a growing movement within the Republican Party led by Trump to conduct that sort of a fascist coup? Does your reporting bear that out? I, I would say Woodward and I, when we started this in December, and then, of course, work into January and February, March and April and May. We're, we were like everyone else watching January 6th. At first, it seems like an insurrection that's spurred by this rally, and it kind of happened sporadically. But our reporting showed this was anything but some kind of isolated firestorm. In fact, as we unearthed for the book, there was a memo authored by John Eastman, a conservative lawyer, that outlined a six-point plan to effectively decertify and throw out electors, make sure Biden doesn't win, to have Pence walk away from the lectern and have the election thrown to the House, spelled out in explicit detail. And not only was it spelled out in a memo, but this memo, and John Eastman in, in particular, confronted Pence on January 4th in the early evening with Trump in the Oval Office. And we always hear about the January 5th scene, and we have it in detail in our book, Pence and Trump in the Oval Office. But the scene that really has never been deeply reported until this book is the January 4th Eastman Trump, Pence's lawyers, Oval Office telling Pence, you can do this. You can do this. Follow the Eastman plan. Listen to John. And to your point about a coup, this was an effort to, to prevent Biden from taking the presidency. And as Bob is, and I were discussing, this is beyond almost a, a domestic political crisis, a constitutional crisis, if Pence ever says, I'm willing to go forward with it. Let me follow up on that, because that's one kind of coup. But in a lot of countries, coups are actually instigated by the military. And we've been talking about Milley. So the question is, had Trump done that? Had there not been as many human guardrails around him, including Pence, who prevented it, and he had succeeded in overturning the election, seizing power, executing the Eastman along the lines of the Eastman memo, 
What would the military have done? What do you think Milley would have done? Well, Milley in the book is quoted saying that Trump thinks he has the military behind him, but Milley made the point to his senior staff, actually, the military, the FBI, and the CIA are the guys with the guns. And uh, Milley felt they would not support Trump. But again, you don't see... This is all unknowable. And if if we can share our inner experience here as we're reporting this, the Eastman memo alone is a shocker. And then you see that Mike Lee, the conservative Republican senator from Utah, somebody who is much a Trump supporter, got this memo and said, is this true? There are seven states with alternative uh, lectors? My God. And so he conducted an an investigation himself. As we know, senators can get almost anyone on the phone and they got head. He got the heads of the legislatures in Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and said, what about these alternative lectors? And They said, no, there's no such thing. And he realized, he, this Trump supporter, that this was bogus. And he he was quite shocked. And he went down to Georgia on January 4th, two days before the uh, insurrection. And he talked to the Trump lawyers there. And he said, you might as well make your case to Queen Elizabeth II as trying to get Congress to do something. Congress has no role here. Can I just, Eastman is such a a fascinating character and that memo is, you know, clearly a a eye popper when you read it. And, you know, this claim about seven dueling electors from seven states, which was complete fantasy. Now, this guy Eastman, he's a former Supreme Court clerk for Clarence Thomas, a law professor, you know, runs something uh, for something called the uh, Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence. How did he defend that memo? How did he explain how he could put such complete constitutional nonsense into a memo for the president of the United States? Just real quick, the, the thing about Eastman is that he he not only just kind of migrates into the Trump inner circle at the end, but it, it's such an intense period for Pence that when it's somewhat forgotten now, but Pence and his people, based on our reporting, are so on edge about Eastman having the president's ear that they have to get retired Judge Michael Ludig to come into the process at the absolute last moment. And the reason Ludig's brought, brought in is not just because he's a retired judge who's well-known on the right. Eastman was the clerk for Ludig. And so they're really trying to push back on the Eastman notion until the end. I mean, they're piling stuff into this letter into the the last possible moment. And this uh, tell them what this letter was. Well, you have Eastman making this case. And to answer your question, Michael, Eastman is saying because groups of people in, in states are on social media or protesting outside of state capitals, that even if they're not recognized by state legislatures, that somehow Pence can say, well, 
these are alternate slates of electors. They may not be recognized, yeah, but they but are how, how do you conceivably defend that? I mean, I'm, like I'm any bozo in the world <laughs> can declare himself an alternate elector, right? I mean, they had no legal authority to be electors. They weren't recognized by anybody. So how does Eastman, you know, justify Well, you've stuff? seen the memo. We made I know. it public. And uh, people, even uh, in the Post uh, today, Margaret Sullivan uh, is writing a column saying, why is this not big news? Why are people not reporting it more? Now, CNN actually, I think, grasped the uh, significance of it. But, but Michael, if, I mean, let's step back. The whole Trump claim of the stolen election is bogus. There is, and the reason we found these memos important, it's not Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer who are saying, oh, look, there's nothing to support this. It is Lindsey Graham and Mike Lee, two of the big Trump supporters in the Senate. And they come up absolutely blank and they are quite shocked at this. And we see we have interchanges between Trump and Graham, uh, at one point, Graham says to Trump, this summer, you effed up your presidency. And Trump hangs up on him and then calls back the next day. And Lindsey Graham says to him, gee, I would have hung up too. But he is arguing. Again, Graham is, I mean, on Broadway, uh, they're going to do a play called Lindsey. And it's going to be about this person who is riding both horses. Uh, and it's a fascinating tale of somebody supporting Trump and not supporting Trump. And uh, you, you see this road he's traveled. It's, it's almost a tale of Shakespearean ambivalence. Well, Bob, uh, sorry, uh, Robert, you going to add to that? Just something real quick about Eastman is that we, I think sometimes the noise of the transition period, and this was, I was susceptible to this when I started reporting, it seems almost too much at times. Sidney Powell with her claims about election machines, all of these wild and crazy meetings. But the, the Eastman moment, January 4th, 5th, and 6th, is so much in a diff, at a different level because people also seem to forget, it's in the book, that on January 5th, after Trump fails to convince Pence and he calls up Bannon, he calls up Giuliani and says, this guy, for the first time, he's very arrogant with me. He's not listening to me. Trump issues a statement in Pence's name without Pence's approval and says, Pence fully agrees with my position tomorrow on the certification. There was active use of presidential voice and power to put this into motion. This wasn't like some kind of wild Sidney Powell project. This was and then, then Pence's people call up Jason Miller, Trump's advisor, and says, what the heck is going on? You're issuing a statement in Pence's name, and this is on the eve of the insurrection. It was just the more you go back in the reporting, you realize this was very real. As off the wall as it seems in terms of the content and what they were trying to do, it was very real. Yeah, that, that was a shocking detail. Bob, you mentioned um, the Shakespearean nature of the relationship between Lindsey Graham and, and Trump and Lindsey Graham's journey, but you also report very extensively on the relationship between Trump and Pence. And so I want to hear both of you talk a little bit about what you learned about that relationship, what surprised you. One of the scenes that I thought was amazing was, I guess, they're in the White House and outside the White House are these MAGA crowds cheering and 
Trump says, wouldn't it be cool to have that power, making the point that Pence could actually reject the uh, election results. They're actually two different scenes, Danny. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, Costa knows them well, best. Why, well, why don't you start, Bob? No, no, because you, uh, you have it in your head exactly what happened between Trump and Pence. And it's so important to see that Trump is ratcheting up the pressure on Pence day by day. And uh, any, anyway, Costa is the expert on this. Well, the thing that really struck me in the reporting was we had heard about the expletives flying on January 5th, and that's somewhat unsurprising, right? Trump being angry. The, the thing that added a, a chillier dimension to it all after months of doing interviews on this is that Trump was not just screaming at Pence on January 5th inside the Oval Office one-on-one, and this is the day after Eastman is confronting him. Now this is Trump the closer, Trump the dealmaker, no one else in the room, Trump with Pence. And what Trump says is, wouldn't it be cool if the people outside gave you the power to decertify an election, to not give it to Biden? Wouldn't it be great, Mike? Wouldn't it be great to have that power? Wouldn't you want it? And he's referencing, he's putting his hand up based on our our, our interviews up to the mob outside. It's, it, and it's groups of supporters amassing on Pennsylvania Avenue. And Pence says, in response, I, I don't have the ability to under the Constitution. He's very Pensian in his response. I'm boxed in by this and that. Uh, but Trump just keeps going back at him with the temptation of power. And one person who saw Pence leave the Oval Office that night uh, said it was they've seen never seen Pence as white like that, as white as a ghost, really, like he had just left the hospital bed of someone close to him. And uh, that was the person who saw him was this guy named Tom Rose, one of his closest advisors. And Pence leaves. And it was the temptation of power. The presidency, in a sense, was on the table. And, and that's so striking that it wasn't just Trump screaming, but he was putting power on the table and saying to Pence, why not? What was also striking was that he was pointing to that mob outside and saying, these people say you have the power, right? A kind of mob rule. And, you know, with some... And, and there's that stunning scene. It, it's uh, Bob Costa's favorite scene, but I'll, uh, it's become mine, too, because here's Trump in the Oval Office alone, and he opens the doors and the mob is outside and they're cheering. And this is on the eve of the insurrection. And Trump is mesmerized, frozen. Ah, my people. And it gets cold in the Oval Office. Some aides come in and they're shivering and they want the doors closed. Trump will not hear of it. This is his communication. And Costa and I have talked about this. It, uh, reminded me of Nixon in 1974, when Nixon is talking, people in the family and his staff concluded uh, that Nixon was drinking too much, very unstable. He was talking to the pictures on the walls in the White House. And he was talking to Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Trump was talking to the mob. That is his Lincoln, his Washington, that's his connection politically and emotionally. 
And so it, uh, I mean, it, it's almost like, I mean, it, when we did the reporting on it and heard about it, I thought this is the, the parallel is haunted me because you have presidents of the United States who reach a point where they're, you know, almost broken and they're reaching for whatever they can grab hold of. And Nixon grabs hold of Lincoln and Washington and the portraits in the White House and Trump grabs hold of this mob. You know, I, I'm going to let Victoria in here, but uh, it, it does have to be noted that you and Carl revealed Nixon talking to the portraits in the final days, and you and Costa reveal him talking to the mob in peril. So interesting parallel there. I want to go back to, uh, Bob, you mentioned the, the column that Margaret Sullivan wrote today. And one of the things she, she notes is that, uh, and I'm going to quote her, she says uh, she's troubled by how blasé the mainstream press has become about the attempted coup in the aftermath of the 2020 election and how easily a coup could succeed the next time. So my question is, does journalism and the way reporters deal with the kind of the matters that you raise at the end of the book regarding the Eastman memo, does, do journalists need to change? Do they need to go into emergency mode in the way they report and write about the threats to democracy today? Well, I think lots of people are. And I think there is a big discussion out there uh, that is probably not going to stop for months or maybe even a couple of years before the 2024 election. You, you know the polling. Trump has millions of supporters, and the supporters are not just, we like Trump. The supporters are, we believe and are absolutely sure that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump by Joe Biden and by this, these procedures uh, and the bureaucrats. And uh, that is, look at the polling. It's alarming. That's why we think that the reaction Lindsey Graham and Senator Mike Lee had to these memos and their total absolute conclusion, there's nothing here. It's zero. And we have to report on this as neutrals and thought, okay, we saw those memos. Hey, maybe there's something there. Maybe there are things going on in these states that we don't know about. And we found nothing just like uh, these pro-Trump senators did. So, uh, and as you may have noted, the book closes with General Milley looking at and asking the question about January 6th and the insurrection and whether it was a dress rehearsal for something else, some sort of coup attempt, some sort of violent action. And and uh, Milley is a historian, and he looks at the 1905 Russian Revolution, which was a real thing that never went anywhere. And Lenin, of all people, called, what did he call it, Bob? The Great, the great Dress Rehearsal in 1905. And just to your, your point, the, it's such an important question. Uh, the more we had the luxury of time over the past nine months to really go in depth here. And what we kept finding was that, and this is, we were lucky to have this time, but anyone who goes back, you find there's much more we didn't know. Like, for example, Eastman in that memo was one component, but the other component that st stuck out to us 
was in late December, and we didn't really know this, speaking of Lenin, an incendiary figure, Steve Bannon, was in the ear of Trump. And Trump loves his New Year's Eve party at Mar-a-Lago. It's the reason he spends all this time at Mar-a-Lago around New Year's Eve. And I remember as a reporter wondering, why did Trump come back early on just the morning of December 31st? He, he went down to Florida specifically for the New Year's Eve party. Well, it turns yeah, this out- is this, this is just nine months ago, 10 yeah. months ago. And long story short, Bannon spoke to Trump, among others, on December 30th and said, get yourself back to D.C. We need to kill the Biden presidency in the crib. January 6th is the moment for a reckoning. Trump comes back to D.C. the next morning and starts focusing on the 6th. Eastman drafts the memo, gives it to Lee on the 2nd. Pence is under intense pressure by the 3rd. The 4th, he's in the Oval Office with Trump and Eastman. Bannon's talking to Trump. Giuliani's talking to Trump. And the Bannon part of this story, he was seemed to be on the periphery, but the fact that he was in the president's ear was a new dimension that, and that he was talking to Trump on the 5th, talking to Trump on the 30th. And he just got a subpoena from the January 6th committee with our book cited as the reason for the subpoena in the, uh, the footnotes. And so you see, there's always more to learn. And it just in terms of reporting, I, I just think the Woodward method, he's too modest to start talking about it, but just go back, go back, ask people for documents, do longer interviews. You never can know enough. So some people come off pretty well in this book. Bill Barr, the attorney general, telling Trump basically he's not going to do what Trump wants him to do in terms of bringing criminal cases, telling him is uh, the whole uh, election fraud stuff is bullshit. Milley comes off well, Pence to some degree as well. I mean, what do you say? And I know this is a perennial question, Bob, you get after all your books that some people, you know, cooperate and give you very detailed accounts of their heroic standing up to uh, uh, authoritarian instincts of their bosses, but that they're, you know, they had been enablers for Trump. And then when things turned south, they talk to you to rehabilitate their reputations. Well, we check things, as you know, Michael, and what uh, you find, I mean, you say Millie comes off well. Gee, as I heard the hearings in the last two days in the Senate and the House, a large number of Republicans were accusing him of treason, saying he should be court-martialed, saying, and so, right. you know, in, in some eyes, he may come off well. In some eyes, they think uh, he should be hung. Yeah, but those <laughs> are dry, Trump diehards. So, you know, I mean, well, but from those, you know, of those of you readers who have accepted the basic premise that, you know, Trump was unhinged. Well, well, what, you know, again, what yeah. we're not presenting an alternative history, but we're presenting a lot of very new concrete in, information. You know, I, I mean, we should tell your listeners, if it's okay, I hired you. <laughs> yes, you did. Forty years ago, right? You know the star. Now we know who to blame. Yeah. You, yes, right. You were working. I mean, this is so it's such a fascinating story. Not all of which I'm sure you know, but the star closed, and I was the metro editor, and they said you can hire six people from the star. And so I picked Fred Hyatt, who was kind of a natural, right, Michael? Yeah, yeah, my yeah. colleague, old colleague at the Washington Star. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, 
Howie Kurtz yep. was another one. And then I said, uh, we want to hire this. Uh, may I? Okay. Okay. okay, but, okay. Bob, but Bob, I look, wait, I have wait, to wait, say. Wait, wait, wait. What was Bob going to say? Yeah, if you're trying to conceal, uh, you know, I want to be transparent here. I said, we want to hire Michael Isikoff. And people at the post said, well, he, Michael Isikoff, he's a junkyard dog. And I said, <laughs> that's exactly what we need more of. Yeah. We need junkyard dogs. And so we hired you and you did a great job. You well, are. That's, that's I, nice sorry, to hear, Bob, but. I do it's want a to sign say, of affection. Okay, but okay. I do want to say, for the record, yes, when they made a movie of the downfall of Richard Nixon, you get played by Robert Redford, who at the time was <laughs> kind of like a sex symbol. I don't know if you've been watching this American Crime Story impeachment thing, but there's an Isikoff character played by a schmo named da Danny Jacobs, who's hardly a uh, sex symbol. So um, I... Just have to put that on the record as well. Okay, but okay. Did, did, yeah, I mean, here we all have our illusions. Do you think of yourself <laughs> as a sex symbol? <laughs> I hope not. I'll I'll defer to Victoria. Right, listen, hey, oh, this is supposed right. to be a substantive I, podcast. Listen, Can we? When you <laughs> came to work at the Post, you did great stories. You were always. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, yes. No, I, listen You're to that. an independent operator. I was inspired not... by you, Bob. I was no, inspired this is going to go viral on social media. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. All right. <laughs> Michael, I just want to come back to yeah. your, your yeah. question about Barr. I think yeah. what comes through in peril on Barr is that this was an attorney general who was a political confidant while being attorney general to the president of the United States. I mean, it's stunning to see him telling the president in April 2020, voters think you're an expletive, you think you're an effing genius. And it's so clear that while acting as the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, he also wanted to be Trump's top political advisor, or at least one of them. And at the end, does it, is he uh, balking at Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani? Sure, he and he was based on our reporting. But you see this uh, uh, pretty friendly, close relationship politically between the attorney general and the president and not too much pushback at all. I mean, he's saying to the president in the book, some of these claims your lawyers are making are, are idiotic, uh, but he's also making sure U.S. attorneys are looking into it. He's not warring publicly beyond this AP interview. That's a scene we have in the book. So there will always be questions for Barr, uh, for readers after re or reading our reporting. Was he too close to the president? Did he actually do enough beyond kind of some private concern raising uh, in the Oval Office? And, and the key here is what Bob mentioned, that Trump was pushing Barr. Well, what about the stolen election? And Barr said, OK, the department, the Justice Department, uh, the lawyers have recommended we not look at, it, but he, Barr said, I've insisted and I've asked five U.S. attorneys to open preliminary investigations to see if there was any significant fraud or theft in the election. And he, he goes to Trump and he says, there's none. It's bullshit. And Trump, of course, keeps pushing. And Barr says, look, if, uh, you know, if there's something there, Barr politically is on Trump's side. He wants Trump to be reelected, but he gave him 
like Mike Lee and Lindsey Graham, the bad news. The problem is with your case, there is no evidence. So, Robert, you mentioned the January 6th committee and its subpoenas um, a minute ago. And I want to ask you about that because you've done such a thorough job here in you know dissecting the events that led up to January 6th and the events of January 6th and some of the scenes of the afternoon of January 6th, uh, particularly when um, Keith Kellogg goes in and finds Trump alone in the dining room watching TV, and he's trying to get him to write a tweet to calm the crowd down. But anyway, my point is that you know, you've done such a thorough job here, and the question is, what do you think the January 6th committee can still find? Um, because we still, for all the nonsense about Stop the Steal and that January 6th rally outside the White House, it's at the end of the day was a political protest, a political protest, you know, driven by complete, you know, ridiculous claims, but it was a political protest. We haven't yet seen evidence that the planners of that rally and the people that spoke there were conspiring to have the crowd go storm the Capitol. And now, now wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yeah. It was a political protest. They have charged 600. No, 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 no. I'm talking 60. about the rally, the rally but, yeah, before but the, that. But, but they merged. They merged. Well, well that's it's, what it's I'm trying to get people. at. And they've charged 600 people with crimes. Yeah. That, uh, uh, you know, even in the Vietnam protest days, I don't recall, and I may be wrong, but that many people being charged with crimes, this is absolutely extraordinary. And you've seen. The- no, no, no. I, you, you're, you're missing my point. I, I, of course, well, I think you're trying to add. What else should the committee look at? To what should I, I, look I, at? I, I to connect, is there going to be? Is there going to be evidence? Is there any evidence that the planners of the rally? I'm talking about the rally was the political protest. A political protest about nonsense, but it was a political protest. The one that Trump speaks at. The one that Eastman speaks at. Yeah, the question is, does it, it was there a plan or a plot to then have those people go to Capitol Hill and commit violence and mayhem? And that's where you know, I think okay, that's what let's the committee say, is trying uh, to uh, find. Uh, right. Bob Costa, may I ask a question? Let's say we are all practicing journalists as we are, and we're sitting around trying to brainstorm and look at January 6th and say, what's the missing piece of the puzzle? That's what you're asking, right? Yes. And here is the missing piece. We do not know the answer. And I'm sorry to take the Watergate template, but uh, I'm a prisoner of that experience. In, In Watergate, early on, we found out that there were operational managers of all the Watergate operations, not just breaking into the Democratic headquarters, but the spy, other spying and sabotage. And the names of those two people were Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy. You take Hunt and Liddy out of the Watergate equation, it's unclear what happened, but you need people who will execute the will and vision of the higher ups. If Costa and myself and Danny and uh, you and Victoria were all in a newsroom and we had the mandate to try to find out 
these missing pieces or piece of the puzzle, say, find the operational coordinators. Because my assumption based on what I know, they have to exist. You don't have that many people coalesce and, and conduct this violent assault on the Capitol. I mean, this is, in a way, breaking into the Watergate is child's play because it was done at 2 a.m. in the morning and no one else was around. This is a absolutely unparalleled example of violence by hundreds of people. Who coordinated this? What was the... Was there an operational plan, as you're asking? Who were these people? And I would set myself and all of us, I would urge on the quest to find those people because I think they exist. Robert, you were going to say. Well, I think Bob's point about operational commanders is so important. That is, after writing this with Bob in the reporting, that is the lingering question. Who were the operational commanders, the, the Lydian Hunt? for January 6th to translate the mob into a mob that goes from the ellipse down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. But I would add one other th- quick point. There's still more questions to be asked about Trump. And it's not about the idleness on the 6th. It's what was he doing, especially between December 30th, 31st, and January 5th at midnight. I mean, he's clearly in communication with so many people that have have been reported in this book now in other articles, but there's still more to know. Bring it back to Trump. And that's why the Eastman thing was just so jarring to us. He was working things. He was pulling the levers of power. And it's so easy sometimes to assume Trump is this idle figure kind of speaking at a rally, watching television. But it turns out he's actually much more agile in using power and pressuring people with different points I think learning more about that is is critical. I was going to ask, who decided January 6th was the day that the rally was going to occur? It wasn't originally planned to be on January 6th, was it? Well, no, it was changed because of the certification day. It was it was supposed to be uh, days within that range, but not the 6th. And it was because the certification became the focal point for Republicans, the organizers who were affiliated, it's this group, Women for Trump, who formerly organized it, and others decided that this, this whole idea on the right, Bannon's podcast, Trump-affiliated super PACs, social media groups, there was this intense focus on the 6th after especially late December. And that's uh, and it really becomes a focus on Pence. And that that's a story that needs to be told, and we tell as much as we can in the book. So you did not get to interview Donald Trump for this book. If you had the chance to interview him, is there any real question? Is there one question that you would like him to answer? Well, this is the question we always thought about Nixon. If you could ask Nixon a question. And uh, the question for both ex-presidents would be, why? Why are you doing this? What? is the motivation. Uh, I asked Trump at one point, uh, what's your definition of the job of the president? And he said instantly to protect the people. Well, if you look at his record, there is no president who has failed to protect the people as much as Trump. And so what's behind this? And I had some discussions with him. I think he realized that the 
old order in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party was dying. He realized this in 2015, 2016, and uh, he seized history's clock. But but do you think, Bob, that he could answer that question with any self-awareness um, as to why he did what he did in the post-election period in particular? I think it's always possible, and you always want to ask uh, questions. I, I spent uh, 10 hours, 18 interviews with Trump just last year before the election. And these are in the book Rage. And uh, you see moments of clarity, moments of self-deception, moments. I mean, all the moments are there. Trump is a full smorgasbord of all of the capabilities of human nature and uh, a human being. And uh, so I, I don't know, uh, we, what, you know, you, you guys are, and Victoria are all of the, I mean, you understand journalism and uh, what it's done to Costa and myself is it has lit that fire of go back, take your time, don't be in a hurry, keep digging. Danny, I remember, you broke the story about the secret wiretap program, Stellar Wind, when you were working for Newsweek. Am I right? And yeah, yeah. You don't get that story by, oh, hey, I just think I'll go call the CIA director or the head of NSA. You get that story by talking to lots of people. You get, and, and I remember it, and I thought it was a, uh, piece of very important reporting. And so what we've done is we've created a media environment that sometimes we, we disable ourselves because of the rush. Ah, got a little piece of information, let's put it out. Let's do one of these stories, you know, the. Washington Post does them all the time. And the, the, they're often excellent stories, a little piece here, a little piece there, six reporters on the byline and so forth. But the big questions about why and what don't we know at the turning points of history, you've got to go and uh, anyway. I, I, I just want to add, I think that question is so good. What will we ask Trump? I know. I've covered Donald Trump for over 10 years, and the best interviews I've ever had with him are over the phone because he's not doing the whole Trump persona. He's more candid on the phone. He's also someone who doesn't use email, whether he was up in the 26th floor of Trump Tower, in the Oval Office, or in his residence. It's always on the phone. So if I could ask him one question, it wouldn't be about intent, actually, or why, because you look at almost every interview he does now is the same note. The election was stolen. The election was stolen. It, it's every interview is the same. I would ask him for one thing if I had if the chance to give get an honest answer from him would be, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, President Trump, would you please share your phone logs from January 5th and January 6th? <laughs> I think um, after this. You um, see why I wanted to work with. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, that's exactly the right question. And then I know Costa would say once if he got fifth and the sixth, he'd say, how about the fourth? That's right. <laughs> the third yeah. of, of December. How about just all your phone logs? 
I was going to say after this interview, uh, uh, after this podcast, my question for Trump would be, who are your operational commanders? Right. Um, I think yeah. that's the key question. Let me ask both of you guys this, because the one person we have not really uh, talked about in this conversation is Joe Biden. And a good chunk of your book is about Joe Biden, his campaign, uh, the first few months of his presidency. Uh, so I'm curious, starting with uh, with Robert, what, what have you learned about Biden's uh, governing style in these first few months dealing with, you know, first COVID, dealing with uh, the, you know, very difficult and chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, and now uh, the battle over his uh, domestic agenda? What qualities have you seen in him over these first few months? I appreciate the question because we've spent significant time on President Biden, and the President Trump story is obviously so historic, that transition. The Biden story, though, is compelling. And what really stands out to me, to him as a character in the book and based on our reporting, is that the Biden I knew when I started out as a reporter in 2009, 2010, when he was in his first term as vice president, I used to see Biden come over to the Capitol to talk to McConnell. And he would cut these fiscal deals with McConnell. I'd wait outside McConnell's office and Biden would have his Secret Service detail. And Biden was the deal maker. And he was a man of ambition. You could sense then a seasoned hand in Washington. And when you talk to Biden's friends now, they always talk about 1988, 2008. This was a man driven by ambition, almost Kennedy-esque. He wanted to be a player, a leader. The Biden in 2017, watching Charlottesville starts out chapter one, becomes a different Biden. That Biden I saw up close as a reporter, his friend saw for decades. It became less about ambition and more about mission. And you see him almost called to run for president. It's a winding path, but he's called to run because he sees Trump as an un-American president and that this country's is on the brink. The democracy is fragile. And so he kind of gets himself, wills himself to do it. And when he he gets there, it's not so much about being at the center of the party. He almost drifts with the party. The, if the party's left, I'm not going to fight it. And he says to his friends and advisors when he's in there and to senators, I want to do an FDR style legacy. But to him, that also means working closely with Bernie Sanders. So a man who's so often seen as moderate Biden from Delaware, the Amtrak riding centrist, he's actually become this progressive standard bearer, even if he's not the perfect model for it. He's become their champion. And it's kind of an acceptance of his role, his time. And that's what you see at Biden at 78 years old, at least based on my reporting and conversations. Bob, I'd love to get you uh, to talk about this in the context of national security and particularly Afghanistan, because you wrote Obama's wars and, you know, the most comprehensive, thorough account of the uh, the surge back in 2009. And, you know, we know that Biden opposed that. When you were watching this withdrawal from Afghanistan and all of the controversy that ensued, what were you thinking and what did your what does your reporting show about um, how what happened in 2009 may have affected Biden in 2021? Yeah, that's a that's a really thoughtful question, Danny, because uh, what happened here and we have three long chapters in peril about Afghanistan. And there were 25 national security meetings, small group meetings, one-on-one meeting. This was an unfolding process. And Biden was determined to get out. He was not going to stay there. And uh, we report how his top cabinet officer, Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Defense Austin, in March, went to Europe and 
the European foreign ministers are saying, you can't withdraw summarily in a hurried way, slow it down. And they both came and made formal recommendations to Biden, slow it down, as Austin said, gate it, have, you know, re remove a few troops here, a few troops uh, uh, over a period of time. This seems to be one of the complaints that they didn't do that, they didn't slow it down. But when you look at all of this, you, you see that position shifted, they evolved, but behind it is the voice of the president. And the voice of the president is we capture 12 years ago when he was talking about what Obama did when he asked 30, added 30,000 troops, which Biden disagreed with strenuously. Biden says in one after action report, the military doesn't F with me. He has a very a view that the military is its own interest group. And there's validity in that. And uh, so he, he was gonna go, I think the military realized with only 3,500 troops there, it's not enough to give you any leverage with the Taliban. We report on, I think, page 378 in our book that there was intelligence that uh, the Afghan government is gonna collapse. And the intelligence was, it may be in months or years, there was some disagreement on it, but th these were perceptions in April a May, March and April of this year, and someone got it right. <laughs> it did collapse in months. And so they're going to do an after action report. Millie testified all, all his information, all the intelligence is going to be given to the Congress. So we're going to have, uh, I expect, a rather thorough and quite likely brutal period of after-action review, and I think this is a good thing. You know, Bob, your, your, your analysis uh, of the Afghan decision and how Biden was the driver at the end is just a reminder that, you know, whatever else other considerations are, there's always that deeply personal element that drives decisions. And this was a chance for Biden to vindicate himself, he thought, for getting you know rejected back during the Obama years. Um, anyway, it's also a reminder that I think uh, uh, the book is, as Bob described it before, quite a smorgasbord of uh, characters you. and events and is essential reading. So Bob and Robert, I wanna thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.